Welcome back, everybody. We are now going on to our second portion of today's debate, where we will deal exclusively with the collapse of the third tower in New York that day. came down at 5.20 in the afternoon, and that was Building 7. Let's welcome back our two debaters. First, Mr. Chris Moore. And Mr. Richard Gage, AIA. Okay, ready to go. I am now going to read a prepared statement that uh, was jointly crafted by our two debaters, or they both had input in any case. And it will be to introduce the topic of this segment, Building 7. Here are five minutes of facts that our debaters agree on and want to share with you about the collapse of Building 7. World Trade Center Building 7 was a 47-story skyscraper about a football field in length away from the North Tower. There are both differences and similarities between Building 7 and the Twin Towers. Here are some of the differences. No plane hit Building 7. The Twin Towers suffered structural damage from plane crashes Building 7 suffered non-significant, quote, non-significant structural damage from the debris that fell from the towers. The Twin Towers suffered an explosive collapse. Building 7's collapse was implosive. The fires in the Twin Towers had single sources when the planes crashed into the buildings. The fires in Building 7 had separate sources on separate floors. In November 2008, the National Institute of Standards and Technology issued its final report on Building 7. The report states, quote, The collapse of World Trade Center 7 is the first known instance of a tall building brought down primarily by uncontrolled fires. The Twin Towers burned for under two hours each before collapsing. Building 7 got hit with burning debris at 10.28 a.m. and collapsed at 5.30 p.m. And according to NIST, burned for almost seven hours. Now we will paraphrase the NIST report so we know what they claim. NIST explained that column 79 helped support the east penthouse of the building. Building 7 had a large open atrium in the lobby and was held up by columns. Here's a photo of column 79 and the nearby structure. NIST states that the, quote, normal office fires were the main reason for the collapse, along with the lack of water for the, fire, uh, for the firefighters to fight it. Fires burned all afternoon, especially on the lower floors. Separate fires in World Trade Center 7 broke out on different floors, most notably on floors 7 to 9 and 11 to 13. Firefighters reported large gashes and fires in the south face of the building, but NIST states in their final report, that there was not much structural damage. NIST claims that Building 7 collapsed because heat expanded the floor beams and their unusual length magnified that effect. They also claim that connections between structural elements could not resist the effects of heat and that the structure was not designed to prevent fire-induced progressive collapse. The north side perimeter showed fires only on a few floors, but NIST claims that fires were more extensive on the south side, which was hit by burning debris. NIST states that a girder on floor 13 lost its connection to a critical column, column 79, that provided support for the long floor spans on the east side of the building. 
The displaced girder caused floor 13 to collapse. Floor failures cascaded to the fifth floor. This collapse weakened column 79 over nine stories. Column 79 then buckled and triggered an upward progression of floor system failures that reached the building's east penthouse. NIST asserts that the failure first occurred from floor 12 and then to the top of the building. Then all of the columns east to west failed in the core of the building. Finally, the entire facade collapsed uh, collapse at nearly symmetrical at a nearly symmetrical six degree tilt. This series of structural failures, most visible, invisible, mostly invisible, I should say, very important, with the east penthouses seen collapsing first, then around seven seconds with, the, with nothing visible on the north face, as evidence of the complete collapse of the penthouse and the structure beneath during those seven seconds. And this shows this photograph of light shining through the windows <coughs> right uh, after the east penthouse disappeared from view. By visual observation, this acknowledges that the building's exterior facade fell at less than freefall acceleration for 1.5 seconds, then at approximately freefall acceleration for 2.25 seconds, through a distance of approximately eight stories, which would be 32 meters or 105 (laughs) feet. The entire facade collapsed downward as a single unit in 6.5 seconds. NIST also performed a computer analysis of what an explosive demolition might have looked like. These diagrams show NIST's speculation that many more broken windows, much louder sounds, and a different pattern of destruction would have been observed. Other scientists and institutions, each with their own expertise, has proposed variations on NIST's proposed causes and sequence of the the collapse of Building 7, including Arthur Sherman, Ryan Mackey, the Council on Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat, the University of Edinburgh, and ARUP. Now, we're going to go right into our format that we had before, questions for each of our debaters. Again, the uh, order these questions are derived in uh, were, came, uh, were come up with jointly by our two debaters. So then... First, we're going to go to uh, Richard Gage and uh, his critique of the NIST explanation. Mr. Gage, that just sounded like a pretty reasonable explanation, which most people believe. Why don't you go along with it? Here's the problem that I have with the NIST explanation. It's lacking the acknowledgement of all of the evidence for explosive controlled demolition found at the site from the eyewitness testimony and the debris pile and the chemical analysis, all of which are features of explosive controlled demolition. In this case, not as explosive as the Twin Towers, where everything blew outside the footprint. In this case, it's a perfect implosion, as quoted by FEMA. Uh, We have each of the features of explosive controlled demolition, so we're going to break this down into subjects. Uh, Fire can't account for any one of these features, let alone all ten of them. So the question for you tonight is, is this proof of explosive controlled demolition? Let's start with explosive demolitions. We know how they behave because we have hundreds of examples from all across the country from which to draw our comparison. This is an explosive controlled demolition. We have 
a near freefall collapse uh, caused by the destruction of the structural components inside the building, starting with the interior columns progressing outward, starting with the floor progressing upward, where the columns are taken out virtually simultaneously. This produces a symmetrical collapse at near freefall acceleration because we've removed that resistance. So we know an explosive controlled demolition when we see one. The question for you is, is this an explosive controlled demolition? What you're seeing are high shots. Now, here we're going to show you a videotape of the collapse itself. Describe that. Now we go to videotape the collapse of this building. Let's take another look. East penthouse first, Richard, that second before. And the rest of it comes down at near free fall symmetrically. It's gone, man. Uh, now to Chris Moore for his rebuttal. Well, first of all, so many people, when I express my skepticism about the controlled demolition, say, what about Building 7? And we're finally talking about it. I didn't talk about it in my first debate, so I'm glad to be doing it here. Scientific debate has been raging about Building 7. I shouldn't say raging. That's an exaggeration. But the structural engineers and physicists who have studied this this is, by the way, not a scientific debate. I'm not a scientist. Um, I'm coming at this as a journalistic person. Richard has a lot more training than I do, but neither of us really has all the training we need to do the hard science on this. These computer simulations that NIST did are way more advanced than were available in the 60s or 70s or 80s or 90s. In fact, even in, in the year 2001, these kinds of simulations um, were, not, were not available as part of the technology of the time. There are six different natural collapse theories that I've seen so far. Some of them talk about not only do the, do the steel beams expand more, but then after they cool off and the fire moves somewhere else, they sag and then they contract, and the, and the contracted sagging steel brings things back together even more for more um, of, the, uh, of, of the inward bowing there. So that pulls in on the exterior supports even more. NIST has given... Uh, some advice. We, we have to realize that one of the reasons the NIST did this, the main reason the NIST does this, whenever there's a catastrophic disaster of some kind, NIST is, is, in, is empowered to study it and to make recommendations about future things to do. And right now they're advising against unsupported long strut building designs in the future. The recommendations have been taken up by the International Code Council and the National Fire Protection Association. Um, so there's, there's quite, a, quite a bit of that. I, I, again, I've been confused. I actually just found out from Richard that he thinks the thermates were used here, which are, are hot but not as explosive, and the thermites, or nanothermites, rather, were used in, in, um, in the towers. So I keep finding new information like that. But one of the things that I, that I wonder about with these findings, I know you completely disagree with the findings of how this building collapsed. Do you also oppose the building and fire and safety recommendations that NIST has released in these reports? Well, we have one minute now for the two of you to discuss that. Perhaps Richard would like to start. In fact, I do. There are billions of dollars that are spent needlessly as a result of the recommendations that were forced, uh, in effect, on several other uh, building codes. Well, that would scare uh, me if you won that it, argument. It's needless. And, and architects and engineers, 1,400 of us, are crying for a new investigation. We're crying out for to understand how this collapse looks so much like an explosive demolition. Let's take a look. Let's take a look. <laughs> Let's take a different look. That's my side. We need to go to Richard's side. We should give him a few seconds for this. There we go. 
I'm not going to enforce the zero seconds on you, Richard. That wouldn't be fair. You're a sweetheart, Chris. <laughs> How come, Chris, they look so similar? Wouldn't you want similar? a new investigation since they look, World Trade Center 7 and another known controlled demolition do, look almost exactly alike? You know, you never play the sound on track on these, do you? Why not? Why not? Well, we they don't... sound completely different. Well, of course they do. One is high-energy explosives. One is thermite, so which doesn't have so a lot of So these are different bank. kinds of collapses in one way or another. It's a deceptive controlled demolition. That's why we find pools of molten iron underneath it. Mm -hmm. All right, gentlemen. Uh, we just got uh, word in from Congress. They gave us an earmark to be able to extend that. And Richard <laughs> did get some of his time back after all. All right, then. Now we are going to go to Chris Moore. Uh, with a question uh, as follows. It's about the fires in World Trade Center 7, the number and the size and the duration. Mr. Moore, the fires in Building 7 seem to be regular office fires without jet fuel. How could they have been big enough to bring down that building? Well, that's a good question, obviously. And um, it was the one that NIST had to work on for a very, very long time because it's true that the airplanes didn't come crashing in there. One of the things that I've been kind of struck by is that when I watch the videos of both Richard Gage and, and others out, you know, um, that, that have put out, put out these various videos, Stephen Jones and others, um, that I usually see that New York Police Department north side thing. But there are many pictures of much, much more damage on this. Um, the World Trade Center had its origin on 10 different floors of, uh, where, it, where it began the fires. The water supply to fight the fires in World Trade Center was impaired, and there were no efforts made to fight the fires. And when you see these pictures on the other side, they are really raging. Um, eyewitness Chris Bull, a firefighter, said it was a huge hole right in the middle of it. Here we have responders walking through the nice, cool debris pile while Building 7 fire is raging on. You can see smoke pouring out of most of the floors here. And you can see also what happens with the debris um, and how it affects it. It's, it's, it's very, very serious. Um, let me hit this again. Um, here, here it is coming down. Of course, this is the tower now coming down. And it's sending a lot of debris over onto Building 7. We can also see more of that kind of thing happening in here, you can see how much the debris, much of that burning coming right on. You can see damage to the building. It wasn't structural damage, but there was a lot of damage that would be caused with the burning. We can also see, um, see other kinds of... Now, why is that happening? Oh, there we go. Okay. Um, this is an ABC film shortly before the collapse um, that, that shows a tremendous amount of damage here. And we see over and over again, we see slides from the other side that show that, that problem of, of there being a lot more damage than is shown in your typical videos um, from the 9-11 Truth Movement. Here is just, just a few more to kind of keep us going here. These pictures and videos from the North Face don't show much damage, but this is, this is a whole different thing. Now, I know that Richard would say that these pictures show smoke but no fire, but I would say that where there's smoke... Um, especially when it's on most of the floors like it is here. But now that's, that fire has gone into the middle of the building, and that's very, very important to know because that's where the collapse actually started. Richard, two minutes to respond. Wouldn't we expect that if there were lots of fire damage and lots of debris damage on the south side of the building, that the building would have fallen toward its injured side? Does it do that? No. Uh, in fact, we have only small fires on the north side, uh, and these are the largest fires we have evidence for, actually. Uh, and Appendix L of the draft report from NIST shows that these fires were out by, 40, by 4.45 in the afternoon. Now, how can they have caused the initiation of collapse on the 12th floor around column 79 when they were out at least a half hour to 45 minutes prior to that collapse. 
NIST says this whole building came down due to the failure of a single column, this one here, because of the thermal expansion of these. Well, how can they expand thermally when they are fireproofed and protected from that expansion? When they have shear studs that are tied into the composite metal decking, how can, why did NIST falsify the records by applying the heat load in their computer models to these beams, all of them, in just one and a half seconds, forcing them inside the computer model to expand at an abnormal rate independently from the slab on top, the concrete slab, which they did not apply any heat to. This is falsification, fraudulent use of uh, science. Uh, it should not be allowed. Look at the computer animation. 400 structural steel connections failing per second, like you're spraying water on a sandcastle. That's the rate of failure in what really is a uh, re redundant uh, designed stru steel structure system that should not be failing like this. They won't even show us the rest of the collapse. It stops after a couple of seconds. Thank and you, it Richard. begins to tip over, unlike the videos showing a straight-down symmetrical collapse at freefall. All right. We got our one minute back and forth for the both of you on this. Well, first of all, I'm stunned at the suggestion that the fires were almost out right before the collapse. That, that completely blows my mind and goes against all those videos and, and pictures that I show. And briefly, as far as the fireproofing, NIST said that since the fireproofing was painted on as opposed to the this, this steel or rather concrete reinforcement that is typical in large buildings, that that's something they're, they're kind of recommending against. They're also recommending against these long struts that are allowed to expand in a way that, that that lesser struts don't tend to do. These are safety recommendations. I am very, very glad for those safety recommendations. I feel a lot safer because those recommendations have been made. I don't think it's a waste of money. My life isn't a waste of money. Well, the fires were out on the 12th floor where the initiation of collapse was said to have begun by NIST. They acknowledge this in their draft report. Check it out. Uh, also, regarding the damage, NIST suggests that the damage is insignificant, not a causative factor. Neither was diesel fuels, by the way. It was right. the normal That's office true. fires that brought the building down. All right, thank you. Uh, our next question goes to Richard Gage, uh, and it concerns the characteristics of collapse, uh, the near symmetrical destruction. Mr. Gage, you claim that Building 7 came straight down, and it indicates controlled demolition. Why couldn't this happen as a natural collapse? Well, it, it can't happen uh, because, as this NIST computer model shows, uh, they can't even get their own computer model to behave the way a controlled demolition behaves. So they stop it uh, after about two seconds. They won't even show us the collapse, nor will they release the input data. It can't happen because the perimeter wall unit, uh, the perimeter wall structure of this building would deform um, as the internal collapse, which they allege is happening. It would have pulled in those uh, perimeter wall units. It can't happen because the building falls straight down into its own footprint. A building would have fallen over due to natural causes in an organic collapse. Uh, you still have some more time if you'd like to use it. I yield my time. Probably you won't get it back. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, we now get uh, two minutes of rebuttal from Chris Moore. As far as the, uh, the whole symmetrical destruction question, and also I know one of the things that Richard loves to talk about is the path of most resistance. It keeps falling through the path of most resistance. That's what gravity does. It pushes things straight down towards the center of the earth. In the Royal Gorge right here in Colorado, the 
the stream that is only a few miles from relatively flat territory pushed its way through the path of most resistance with, with that flat terrain nearby because gravity kept pushing it down as the uplift happened. So the, the path of most resistance is not really all that's going on. The second thing is that it takes a lateral force to push things off to the side. You can't just have something that says, well, this would be the path of least resistance, so I'll go over here. You need a lateral force to push it over here. A real good example of a lateral force is an earthquake. Many pictures that I have here are good examples of earthquakes um, that have lateral force in them that push the buildings over to the side. That's why we expect it in that situation. Thomas Eager said the building is 95% air. It can implode into itself. A large structure has too much inertia to fall down in any other direction except, any, except nearly straight down. Mm -hmm. Michael Brown pointed out that the collapses for all the buildings began where they were tilted towards that weakened collapse point. In this case, the weakened collapse point was the east penthouse, and it did tilt six degrees into that, but most of it was an internal collapse, and then finally the perimeter, the perimeter collapsed after that. The other thing that kind of blows my mind about this falling into its own footprint sort of thing these are the sloppiest controlled demolitions in history. I don't know what is going on. I, I, obviously, um, Tom Sullivan must not have been involved in these because these, these things have a 16-acre debris pile. There's, there's stuff flying all over the place in every direction, um, and it, that is not characteristic of a successful controlled demolition. We can see it uh, tilting a little bit to there. This particular one, there's interesting problems because at least on the uh, north face, we don't see squibs, we don't see dust ejection. Um, we see a building that's wider than it is high in, in some ways in, in one direction. And again, as I said, it didn't fall into its own footprint. It caused horrible damage to the Verizon building especially. Gentlemen, one minute. The building falls uh, to the path of, of least resistance a after that resistance is removed. As you'll see on the slide here, uh, we have uh, 80 columns. In order to bring a building straight down uniformly into its own footprint, all of those columns have to be removed virtually simultaneously. Otherwise, the building will begin to tip over, as it does in the example of every fire-induced collapse of a building. But in the inside of the building, it's this mess of collapsing. And 79 is one of the very last columns to go, Richard. It's not, before that, there are other columns that are collapsing, one after another. It's all happening with the outside perimeter somehow holding itself together until the very end. It was a very asymmetrical collapse in the, the middle of it. Um, was, was a complete mess of one column after another until nothing was left to support it at all. The main penthouse falls a second before the overall indicating those core columns were cut uh, virtually simultaneously. And now we're going to go to our next question, and it is for Mr. Chris Moore. Chris, uh, the, uh, again, speaking about the characteristics of the collapse and freefall acceleration, uh, it is acknowledged by NIST that for a portion of the time, the building fell at the freefall acceleration. This, by intuition, would lead one to think that there was a controlled demolition involved. What do you say for that? I asked NIST this repeatedly, and I asked several people at NIST. I, I also sent them emails. The email I got back didn't really acknowledge that there was much of a problem there. So that was frustrating in terms of creating a narrative about how freefall collapse is possible in this situation. The bottom line of what NIST said really was building 
gravity, collapse. You know, they, they, they basically said it doesn't matter if it's free fall or very nearly free fall for any of the buildings. And the reason they say that is because the, the and then they much more politely said to me, there is so much overwhelming force that is bringing it down that free fall is not a problem. I talked to some other people to get a better sense of that, and we can see a little bit of that on this video here too. Let's watch this very, very carefully. This is where we see, first of all, the east penthouse beginning its collapse. And is that going? There it goes. It is going. Okay. Um, it takes seven or eight seconds after the, uh, after the east penthouse collapse, and then there's this buckling that happens that is almost invisible over many floors. That collapse low to the next column, and it fails, and then the next column, and so on, until the entire core is destabilized, and it falls in on itself. When the east penthouse fell downward into the building, you can see sunlight through the windows because the roof was gone. Other windows broke out on the north face at the ends of the building at core as the perimeter of wall was being damaged. And then it is literally, there's one perimeter, or the, when the perimeter is left, it is literally pulled down by an eight-story section of the interior that didn't detach during the core collapse. So there's one small part of it that is going at free fall because this thing is yanking it down. And then it goes back to less than free fall. It starts at less than free fall. It ends at less than free fall for 2.25 seconds that that part that eight that eight story core thing is pulling it down the previous second from the roof line you see a, a buckling and you can kind of look at that as like a long stick that you may have you can kind of push it down and push it down and it bends and then crack and it goes and then you fall at free fall to the ground i think the key there chris is is that you push it down you push it down you push it down unfortunately nothing's pushing up back up in the case of the uh, of Building Seven, the overwhelming force there is not what's coming down; it's the forty thousand tons of structural steel that's five times stronger than it needed to be to resist that pushing down. But all of a sudden, uh, the building starts uniformly, symmetrically, there one second, and then, as we observe, the perimeter structure falls with no. Resistance. Where did the 40,000 tons of structural steel go? They, all those columns had to have been cut virtually simultaneously around the perimeter for that building to come down so fast. Take a look here. The building's gaining downward momentum with every second, indicating the force of gravity is unresisted for those eight stories. All right, gentlemen, uh, now you've got... One minute to go back and forth. Richard, again, you've got a minute left if you'd like to continue. I yield my time. Okay. Okay. Well, first of all, I, I would like to suggest that we can break, come up to the slide here. Once that perimeter does collapse, something amazing happens. You can see it on the slide that's about to come up here. There is no evidence of 4,500-degree thermites or thermates or nanothermites or anything else blowing this face apart. It just kind of buckles over, and you can see it um, in that picture there. Also... Um, if we go to the next one, from the top, um, you can see that the whole thing just kind of folds itself over the top. There's a certain amount of integrity that that perimeter had, um, so that's one of the things I want to mention. Um, also, five times maybe the static load, but, but when you have an active load of gravity pushing things down with the massive amounts of weights that we're talking about with all of these buildings, Richard, it just doesn't work out that way. Uh, can you explain that? I mean, yeah, yeah. How does the active load generate uh, at free fall acceleration with no transition from point zero to free fall. It there doesn't is go that no way. It goes down. slower than free fall, and then it eventually hits free fall, and then it goes slower than free fall again. Not so. Uh, NIST claims there's a slower than free fall, but the building is stationary until all of a sudden it's in full free fall. You can see it in the videos. 
All right. Now our next question uh, concerns the molten metal found in the debris pile and uh, FEMA's Appendix C, and it goes to Mr. Gage. Apparently the structural steel suffered some severe heat and corrosion. Why can't that happen as a result of office fires? Office fires produce about 1,400 to 1,600 degrees Fahrenheit. They don't produce the temperatures required to melt steel. And yet, FEMA documents in their Appendix C of the BPAT report that came out in May of 2002, very clear documentation of the melting of steel. So what melted the steel? They, or my opponent, have no explanation for the melting of steel. Uh, and the hot sulfur corrosion attack documented by FEMA with intergranular melting. What does that mean? Molten iron is seen documented invading the grain boundaries of the steel. Where did the molten iron come from? There's been no explanation for this from NIST or from my opponent. The molten iron is the byproduct of thermite. Scientists find the, ther the signature of thermite in the molten iron. These chunks of steel from Building 7, in fact, the only chunk of steel saved from the illegal destruction of 99% of the, of the evidence, the structural framing of Building 7, they document themselves uh, this hot sulfur corrosion attack. Sulfur doesn't come from this calcium sulfate in the gypsum board. It's an inert bonded ingredient. Gypsum board is designed to protect structural steel. It has never attacked it before. So all of a sudden we have unexplained molten steel we have, and molten iron. We have unexplained chemical evidence of thermate, which is thermite plus added sulfur, which makes a eutectic designed to cut through steel like a hot knife through butter. This all remains unexplained. And it is causative of the freefall acceleration of Building 7 uh, down. Mr. Gage, time up. Now, Chris Moore for two minutes. Well, thank you. I, there, there's some very interesting things to talk about here. Um, first, I just wanted to say that I'm very glad that this, this is a, a, a picture that, that's about to come up that a lot of people have seen in the movement. Um, it's not being used anymore by Stephen Jones or Richard Gage, to their credit. This was originally used as evidence of molten metal in the debris, and I'm only bringing it up because people need to know that if you, if you think that that was evidence, this is actually that molten metal and debris. No, it's actually just a flashlight, which you'll get to see here while, while I'm talking. Um, there is also that slide of that weird meteorite thing, which I'm going to show you in just a second. It was very, very dense. I think there was probably some sulfidized stuff in there, too, and, and that, was, that, was, that is really problematic. So the question is, you know, what is that? This meteorite um, that is oftentimes used as evidence of some kind of intense temperature and that sort of thing, let's focus in a little bit, and we see scraps of unburned paper crushed into that meteorite. So how does very, very hot um, you know, thermites or nanothermites or thermates um, fit in with that? But I think one thing that is very, very important is that you know, FEMA did have a report about sulfidized steel. It remains a mystery. We don't know where that came from. We do know that sulfidized steel can create molten steel at 1,700, 1,800 degrees. 
We don't know the source of it. Um, it's not accurate to say that it came, as Richard said, and he's right, it's not accurate to say that it came from uh, uh, things like the gypsum. That has been claimed, but it's, but it's actually it's not true. It's very, very unlikely that it happened there. I will say that it's localized, these pockets of sulfidized steel. It's not universal throughout, and so it doesn't really explain a global process of any kind. And the other thing about the sulfidized steel is that in a way, it's like, yes, there are, there are some things that haven't been fully explained, but that doesn't mean, oh, therefore it must be nanothermites. That's not logical. Gentlemen, one minute. Well, I, I'm glad to hear you acknowledge, Chris, that the molten metal, which turns out to be molten iron and steel, is not explainable, that the source of sulfur is not explainable from the building materials uh, in the building. The question remains, what does it ex explain it? And so, uh, as I suggested in my opener, I think the debate is already over. I would beg to differ with you. And the reason for that is this assumption that we have. Um, well, okay, I can go home if you want. But I, th so that, I think I'm having too much fun up here, so I'm going to keep going with this. But, you know, this, this is an example of what I call reverse scientific method right here. We can't explain something. It's a scientific mystery. It must be nanothermites. It must be thermites. That is not a valid conclusion to jump to. There are... There are, first of all, some things can't always be explained, but that doesn't mean that something that you know, makes steel melt at 1,400 to 1,800 degrees suddenly becomes evidence of very, very hot nanothermites. I don't get it. That's three items of key specific evidence that are not explainable, that are key points of evidence that NIST chose to ignore, obfuscate, etc. So Thank you, Richard. I am amazed at the length of the sentences that we can come up with at the end of a lot of time. I'm having a hard time stepping on it, but uh, to your both, uh, to the credit to both of you. Okay, let's continue now. Uh, eyewitness accounts of explosions and also uh, World Trade Center 7. Mr. Gage, you claim that people heard explosions there as well during the collapses and that this indicates controlled demolition. Wouldn't this be happening when the buildings came down? Well... Um, one wouldn't expect massive explosions inside the building before the fires even got started. We got to the eighth floor. I started walking to one side of the building. That side of the was gone. The first explosion I heard when I was on the stairwell landing. When we made it down to the sixth floor. Then we made it back to the eighth floor. I heard some more explosions. What's the sound? Like a boom. Like, a, like an explosion. And the first responder, whistleblower from New York Police Department, Craig Bartmer. And uh, the whole time you hear thum, 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 thum. So, I, I think I know an explosion when I hear it. <laughs> and Kevin McPadden, former Air Force medic. And then it was like another two, three seconds you heard explosions. Like, it's like a distinct sound. It's not like when compression, like boom, 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 like floors that were dropping and collapsing. This was a boom, and like you felt a rumble in the ground, like almost like you wanted to grab onto something. That. And also in the vicinity of World Trade Center 7 in the afternoon, about 5 o'clock, this example. Yeah, here's one of the guys you can tell you I'm okay, all right? Here, hold on. You want to call your mother or something? Chris, are these floors falling in on themselves? Richard, you've got 20 seconds left. You Yield my time. Very good. Okay. okay. You've got two minutes, Richard. Yeah. I mean, Chris. Chris, okay. Um, 
I, I also looked at some of your eyewitness accounts, and of course there will be eyewitness accounts of explosions. Um, I know Craig Bartner, who you mentioned you might be talking about, said he heard explosions at the onset of the collapse and not before. One of the challenges that really both of us face when it comes to eyewitness accounts is that unlike the laws of physics, the accounts often change. Six years after 9-11 and weeks after an email hoax uh, to Dylan Avery about a Building 7 countdown, Kevin Mc McPadden came forth, and you can go on YouTube to see this, to say that, first of all, in his first little speech that I saw on YouTube, the firefighters got a vibe that Building 7 was coming down. There was something he couldn't exactly hear, but it sounded like a countdown. And then in the last few seconds, they just looked at him really weird. Well, that's um, then, later... You have the testimony here, this months later, where the testimony has really changed quite a bit at that point, and has changed much more in favor of a controlled demolition and explosive kinds of things. Barry Jennings said that explosions in Building 7 were before the towers collapsed, and we saw his, his thing there. The other eyewitness who was physically present with him at the same time, and they went through this hell together, was Michael Hess, who agreed with him at first that the explosions happened um, ahead of time. And then he said to the BBC that the explosive sounds were tower debris hitting the building later in the day. So he changed his story. So now we have two people with contradictory stories. Tragically, first of all, Jennings got so many phone calls from 9-11 folks that at, at his job that he was almost fired. When he died, the cause of death was revealed only to his next of kin. Now, in my work, unfortunately, I've had to sit across from over 200 grieving families for funerals. I've seen families where the deceased had post-traumatic stress disorder from war and either drank themselves to death or had a drug overdose or committed suicide, otherwise died in ways that the family didn't want to reveal. Other families have kept the cause of death secret even for a simple heart attack or just to push away public brouhaha in the time of grief. Now, a 9-11 person did hire a private investigator, which honestly I consider to be unethical, and I really would hope that we were careful to respect the wishes of a grieving family in this situation. Uh, gentlemen, one minute for back and forth. Let me switch gears and show you this slide, uh, Chris. This is building number five. It was fully engulfed in fire. Building seven had a few isolated pockets of fire, which you're claiming brought it down by a natural collapse. Uh, yet building five didn't come down. How come it didn't come down? First of all, it was a lot shorter, for starters. I don't, what was it, 12 stories or something? Something. A whole, uh, it's almost like a whole different set of rules apply, and NIST has taught to me about this personally. The rules change when things get way, way, way bigger. Um, they, they can't take a small model and then make it expand to a bigger model. This is a, a relatively small building. didn't have nearly as much weight pushing it down, and so I would say that would be my first answer off the top of my head. Any other okay. questions? And why was the evidence uh, destroyed, uh, taking, sh shipped to China? Uh, in, at 400 truckloads a day prior to the report coming out, which claimed that they, uh, they needed the, the steel to examine because they had no idea how the building came down, the FEMA report. Well, we're, we're out of time. <laughs> the frustrating. Please write that down as a question. I have an answer. <laughs> this, this told me about that. All right. We've got one more question in this segment, and then we'll go to the concluding remarks of well, our debaters. Oh, I'm sorry. Would you care to read the question for me? I'm not sure which one it is. Okay. okay. Um, well, Chris, um, <laughs> a lot of people have wondered, and, and it oftentimes it's, it's the first gut response that people have when they are first exposed to this idea. Well, how could so many um, controlled demolition devices be brought into these buildings secretly? And so what do you have to say about that? So I'll, I'll answer that. If I'm glad I asked you that, Chris. Yes. <laughs> Before you do, though, if you could repeat it for the... For the DVD, that would be great. The question. It, I'm sure it's fine for the. 
Okay, I'm going to put it in my own words. Uh, And the next question is for Chris Moore. Uh, Chris, uh, if a controlled demolition were were to take place, it would involve a great deal of preparation uh, prior. It appears that a controlled demolition took place to many people. Um, How uh, could that be uh, vis-a-vis the preparation that would be required? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, If your gut tells you that that would be impossible, my feeling is your gut is right. Um, It would be impossible to secretly prepare for a controlled demolition in a building where 30,000 to 50,000 workers are coming and going day and night, working the New York, London, and Tokyo stock exchanges. And NIST says one-fourth of these survivors from 1993 were still working there. So there was a lot of stories about that, that first terrorist attack. This is a massively worried workforce of New Yorkers, for gosh sake. The tallest building ever demolished was 26 stories, and 12 people were 24 days doing nothing but loading explosives. The World Trade Center, one tower would require 24 times more work per building, in secret, with tens of thousands of nervous workers around. Now, again, I went back to a controlled demolition advocate, um, uh, Tom Sullivan, who talked about this, and he said that linear shape charges would, would be used. Now, when, once, as soon as he starts talking about that, because he thinks that would be necessary for the lateral ejection, I go, well, now you're dealing with welding torches and the smell and the noise of setup. That is not possible. The outer structure supports um, were right next to the most desirable office spaces on the outside. Explosives that are big enough to eject steel all this distance would have to be way too loud for any of the kinds of things that we heard on any of the videotapes. Remote controls in the core might be difficult for, for receiving radio signals. Creating tra- safe charges, like I said, is noisy and smelly. Um, and then it, it's just kind of a strange thing because I've heard contradictory things. And maybe, Richard, you can help clarify this for me because I, I don't understand it. Either it's a very small controlled demolition secret thing that happened with only eight or nine people who did, and everyone else was out of the loop, or it's a really big thing. And I hear accusations going against the mayor, the fire, and the police chiefs, the building owner, the BBC, the phony man on the street interviews, several layers of the federal government. I'm sorry. I don't believe that. I don't believe that that massive a conspiracy could possibly be pulled off secretly. Well, let's take one possible look, Chris. Maybe we can figure something out. I agree with you that these buildings were among the most highly secure in uh, the country, being uh, next to the Pentagon. Uh, Building 7, for instance, had the CIA, the IRS, the Department of Defense, Giuliani's Office of Emergency Management. So we would expect that um, some conspirators uh, would be getting together and would have to have the access uh, through security that security might be involved. Well, not only would security have to be involved, but some undercover operation that would be planting explosives, uh, they would have gotten access, in fact, in an elevator modernization, which did occur in the nine months prior to 9-11. Ace Elevator had this contract. Uh, They worked for nine months uh, and uh, in the largest modernization uh, documented uh, in elevator world in March of 2001. This would have given them intimate access to the core columns and beams in the structure, as many men and as much time as they needed. Uh, They scattered, as a matter of fact, when the first plane hit, uh, they scattered, uh, uh, and it was quite a, a scandal documented by USA Today, Uh, because they are supposed to stay around and help the firefighters rescue these victims. They're experts in the delivery systems for those rescues. Where did they go? Relative to how these explosives might have been set, 
remote control operative systems are, are in place these days. We don't need miles of debt cord and so forth. We have an unlimited budget in an undercover operation like this, assuming, as we are prone to in the 9-11 Truth Movement, that there was an inside operation of some sort. We don't know how high it was, how wide it was, but they must have had an unlimited budget. So we don't know the capability of the ignition devices that might have been used. Uh, thank but you, Richard. We do know that they, that they had the capability uh, to survive fires uh, because thermites are not set off by normal office fire temperatures. Okay, before the one-minute back-and-forth point of uh, clarification, I think, is in order. While this uh, segment is to be about Building 7, obviously we have strayed into the World Trade Center towers. But because both of our debaters did the straying, I'm going to allow it to stand. So you may continue <laughs> back and forth. Well, okay, first of all, Obviously, I can't possibly debate against some dark secret thing that is a technology that we don't know. I mean, that, that's, that's out of the question. I, I do want to ask you, Richard, though, do you think that it was just the core columns in the tower that had all this stuff happening? Because if so, that doesn't really explain the squibs. It doesn't explain the fact that uh, these explosions were, were heading out in such a, such a great d distance. It doesn't explain the, 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 uh, the destruction of all the, um, of all the concrete and everything, the pulverization of all the concrete. Where do you think that, these things, that, that all these uh, things were secretly put? Yeah, my postulation, my speculation is that they were placed in the core. And that's why we have the massive explosive event in the Twin Towers, which is different than Building 7, because they had to have enough explosives in there to not only blow out the core, but the floors. And that extra force is what blew out the And those nice little tiny squibs that came out were because of the massive explosion that went off accidentally in the middle of the core? We're going to have to leave so. it at that, because we have one more question here in this segment. It's going to go to Richard Gage, and it deals with foreknowledge of the World Trade Center 7 destruction. Mr. Gage, uh, I hear that they knew in advance that Building 7 was going to collapse. There seems to be numerous examples of that. Well, let's take a look. Um, we have foreknowledge uh, as one of our uh, corroborative evidence uh, points, including these mysterious construction workers and the police officer caught on CNN television, uh, for which there's very little explanation other than advanced foreknowledge of explosions that are going to Chris, why are these construction workers and police officers telling us that the building is about to blow up? Uh, and why is there a countdown uh, here from Kevin McCarthy? At McCadden? the last few seconds, he took his hand off, and you heard three, two, one. Do fires bring buildings down to countdowns? I should go into that business. Why is the BBC announcing the collapse of this building 20 minutes before it happens? They apologize for this grievous error, citing the confusing events of the day. Does that make them psychic? Why does CNN announce the collapse of the building at 11.07? Listen. In New York, Alan Dodd-Frank joins us on the phone uh, in lower Manhattan. Alan? Alan, uh, just a 
two or three minutes ago, there was yet another uh, collapse or explosion. I'm now out of sight. A good Samaritan has taken me in on Duane Street. But at a quarter to 11, there was another collapse or explosion following the 10.30 collapse of the second tower. And a firefighter who rushed by us estimated that 50 stories went down. Um, the street filled with smoke. It was like a fire, uh, forest fire roaring down a canyon. Now, as I think Patty Sabga and others have told you, all of Manhattan is covered, downtown Manhattan is covered with thick... Why does the... Richard, you're out of time. Sorry. And now Chris Moore will respond for two minutes. There was foreknowledge of, dis- of, of destruction, and I want to show a slide, and this is worth a lot of time to read this. This is from Fire Chief Nigro. I feared a collapse of Building 7, as did many on my staff. The collapse of World Trade Center 1 damaged portions of the lower floors of 7. Building 7 was built on a small number of large columns, providing an open atrium on the lower levels. Fires on many floors of World Trade Center 7 burned without sufficient water supply to attack them. For these reasons, I made the decision, without consulting the owner, the mayor, or anyone else, as ranking fire officer, that decision was my responsibility to clear a collapse zone surrounding the building and to stop all activity within that zone. Approximately three hours later, World Trade Center 7 collapsed. Conspiracy theories abound, and I believe firmly that all of them are without merit. Now, there are others. Deputy uh, Fire Chief Peter Hayden, we have that here. We have uh, another, another firefighter who said it was fully engulfed. The whole building, there were pieces of tower 2 in building 7 and the corners of the building missing. You could see flames going straight through from one side of the building to another. That's an entire block. Deputy Chief Peter Hayden, we saw the bulge in the southwest corner between floors 10 and 13. We were pretty sure she was going to collapse. At the edge of the south face, you could see it was very heavily damaged, says John Norman. Fire Captain Chris Boyle, Butch said, forget it. There's creaking. There are noises coming out of there, so we just stopped. And at 520, number 7 finally falls. There's a stampede. All these firefighters are waiting with their pickaxes and oxygen tanks to come in, and they're heading out towards the crushed fire trucks. They're looking for their brothers, says an ambulance driver. These firefighters, you know, they didn't hear Richard Gage's little mantra about how no steel frame building has ever collapsed. Hundreds of their brothers had just died, and they were looking at a structure that was also deforming and they and they were using these these very simple devices to determine that there was there was irregularities in the building and just like they're so used to seeing buildings about to collapse they they see those kinds of structures falling apart and they they said it's going to go one minute please back and forth if building seven was massively damaged on the south side why did nist come back and say that the damage was not a significant factor the damage, the, the building, the onset of collapse started all the way on the back side of the building at column 79. Well, they, okay, yeah, that's, that's great. Sure, that there was not, NIST admitted, because they were being honest, that there was not major structural damage that caused this. But one of the things I, I want to say to you, Richard, stop beating up on this BBC reporter. She was sitting there saying, you know, look, you know, the, what we're getting is very, very sketchy, and she was right. She had a bunch of people, her, her colleagues were sitting there watching TV stations. They weren't getting firsthand information anymore. She, she said that the towers have collapsed, but the correct news was given by ABC News, and I was was watching that, and ABC News said that the firefighters are saying it looks like it's going to collapse. So stop blaming her for that. So how about CNN? What, same what, same mistake. What, what, the, the fires the hadn't even started yet. There's no structural failure yet at 10.45 in the morning. Doesn't well, make sense. Was the building supposed to go down at 10.30, 10.45 in the morning? 
we wouldn't have seen the massive uh, collapse. These are rhetorical points, apparently, because uh, our time is up for any answers on that. But um, we're going to now go into concluding remarks. We'll start with uh, four minutes from Chris Moore. I'm so grateful for all of you to be listening to us duke it out here for such a long time. I can't believe you're sitting here and listening to all of this. Thank you. This is not a scientific debate, as I've said before. I'm not a scientist. I put on my journalist hat. I investigated the scientific claims that Richard Gage is making very carefully and very seriously, and I've concluded that they have no foundation. The National Institute of Science, of, Stan of Standards and Technology, rather, issued their technical findings on the collapses of these buildings to determine the causes and to make recommendations for safety, fire code standards, and building standards. Now they're working on designs to reinforce elevators for tall buildings that would be safer than the stairwells that, that were used in the past. The International Code Council, the National Fire Protection Association, they were, they were there for that. The people I've talked to and read are forensic analysts, fire chiefs, structural engineers, MIT physics professors, controlled demolition experts, scientists who answered my technical questions on a physics chat room, nationally recognized fire experts. I talked personally to four different NIST representatives. NIST scientists personally answered some of my questions. Add to that the 14 engineers and physics experts who I talked to personally. What they say makes sense to me. The science and the scientists themselves all around the world are overwhelmingly on the side of natural collapse. Every national structural engineering body in the world, including the American Society of Civil Engineers and Britain's Structural Engineering Institute, has accepted the technical findings of the 9-11 Commission and the FEMA and the NIST reports. The multi-year Purdue study and the Honolulu University studies also validated the NIST reports. Even the scientists who disagree somewhat with NIST offer only minor variations in their theories. Richard Gage has over 1,400 architects and engineers calling for an independent investigation. It's almost unimaginable but possible that virtually all of the physicists and structural engineers and scientists and hobbyists like myself who know science are wrong. But let's just say that we are wrong because that could happen. Honestly, right now, with the information that we have and the science that I consider to be inadequate, there is not enough evidence that holds up to scientific scrutiny. I have had to work really, really hard to argue that point. If you're friends, if you're a 9-11 controlled demolition advocate and they kind of avoid you, they don't want to go through the work that I just went through over all this time. But if, I, if I'm wrong, and again, anything is possible. Um, a lot of people made fun of the people who were looking for gorillas in, in Africa, but finally somebody caught one and brought it back to England. And so, you know, that was just considered some crazy idea by some people. But there is some hope. There are two things. Number one, WikiLeaks and other... Other organizations, and WikiLeaks is not the only one, there are others that are out there. Anybody could come by and give some really, really strong information. And a place like WikiLeaks would put that information out in a New York minute. Anyone can create a private blog. The cat is out of the bag. Government secrecy is getting more and more difficult. The other last hope is actually perhaps one of those wealthy movie stars that supports the position of 9-11 controlled demolition should be approached, and I'm very serious about this, to finance some really serious honest-to-God, peer-reviewed studies of the thermitics in the dust. We've got to start here. Some of the experiments are not complete yet. We don't have really proof of the fluorine in the dust. They didn't use, um, you know, they, they used uh, uh, regular air instead of um, nitrogen or argon as an example in that. To, and so, you know, thermites are supposed to burn without oxygen. They failed to do that. That doesn't make the, the experiments completely invalid. It means you have to go back and have more studies um, to also to separate out the way that the, the chemical signatures that you see in, in the, in the so-called thermitic dust versus the, period, the, the stuff that appears naturally in the, uh, in the towers and in the, in the World Trade Center 7. So, 
In the meantime, for the rest of you, I wonder if you ever worry about the absolute absence of this physical evidence and the absolute absence of, of people to come forth directly. And I want to ask that I've given you now over 100 reasons why natural collapse makes sense. And I have to ask you, what would it take to make you satisfied with a natural collapse theory if that's not enough? All right, Thank Richard, you. uh, your four-minute uh, summation, please. As we have seen, the destruction of World Trade Center 7 shows all the characteristics of an explosive controlled demolition, a classic CD, a deceptive engineered event with the use of incendiaries. The NIST report obfuscates and omits the critical evidence from the crime scene. It's a cover-up from beginning to end. And once again, my opponent is unable to account for the many physical impossibilities contained within it. We've shown that NIST grossly distorted the fire severity and duration. NIST fabricated a new phenomenon of thermal expansion to justify a fantastical tale of complete internal and external structural failure of a redundantly designed 47-story high-rise in just a dozen seconds. How, all due to the failure of a single column. NIST failed to conduct simple calculations or experiments to substantiate their theory. Instead, having been deprived of the benefit of directly observing the steel uh, because of its illegal destruction, they relied upon animated computer models which bear no resemblance to the observed collapse. Of course, we are denied access to the data inputs as well. NIST refuses to release such data requested via the Freedom of Information Act, claiming that its release would jeopardize public safety. In fact, the opposite of true is true, of course. Public safety is jeopardized by the withholding of this information from the architects and engineers who need to design buildings which don't free fall to the ground as a result of a few isolated pockets of fire. NIST refused to consider the most likely hypothesis of explosive controlled demolition, favoring their a priori assumed hypothesis of fire, even though fires never brought down a high-rise, and every high-rise that has been brought down has been brought down by explosive controlled demolition. In fact, NIST has not explained the free fall of World Trade Center 7, which they had admitted to earlier, nor have they acknowledged the obvious implication that the supporting structural columns had to have been removed virtually simultaneously. How can this be accomplished by fire? NIST neglected to test for thermite incendiaries in the debris, even though the National Guide for Fire and Explosion Investigation, NFPA 921, requires investigation of explosives given all the evidence of extreme temperatures not accounted for by office fires. Evidence like the dozens of credible reports of molten iron or steel in the debris pile, evidence like the critically important forensic documentation by FEMA in Appendix C of the only piece of Building 7 that was saved from its illegal destruction, melted steel beams, which NIST censored from their final report. In short, NIST's official technical explanation is inconsistent with the evidence and the basic laws of physics. By contrast, the hypothesis of explosive controlled demolition is consistent with all of the available evidence and the laws of physics. Under the prescription of the scientific method, we have no choice but to abandon the official account provided by NIST and to insist on a new investigation, which accounts for all of the evidence, has subpoena power, where testimony is also taken under oath. After all, 9-11 was the precipitating event that sent us into two wars in which already over a million people have perished. We must be absolutely certain about it. 
I call upon my opponent tonight and upon all Americans to join with the 1,450 architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth in this historic cause. And I encourage you to review the evidence available on our DVDs and online at ae911truth.org to sign our petition and put a strong voice to your conscience by speaking out to your friends, colleagues, government and media representatives. Act with courage today. Well. This concludes our second segment. And what do you say about our two presenters? Certainly, they've put up a great presentation. Thank you, guys. So if you're still there and you've managed to listen through the whole debate, first of all, may I say congratulations for getting that far, and I hope you agree with me that it was well worth sticking with. Next week, I shall be speaking to Pastor Tony Brown from UK Partnerships for Christ. Many of you will recall that I spoke a few weeks ago to Bobby Gilpin from that same organization on the subject of Mormonism, but this time Tony will be speaking about the Jehovah's Witnesses. Soon after that, I hope to be speaking to Dr. Martin Erdman for the third interview in the series, Does Anybody Really Believe in World Government? So until then, may I say thank you again for spending this time with me, whenever and wherever you happen to be. You have been listening to The Mind Renewed with me, Julian Charles, and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future.